Welcome to Cato Audio for May 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Don Boudreau takes on the canards surrounding trade deficits. David Rivkin and Douglas Holtz Eakin discuss the falsehoods and flaws in Obamacare. Attorney Nick Dranius talks about clean elections. And economist Mark Pennington offers a powerful defense of classical liberalism in the face of new threats. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. One of the key differences between a public sector union and a private sector union is at least some realization on the part of the private sector union that, uh, well, the company they work for, the company from which they derive their resources, might actually go away. And uh, as long as consumers retain some measure of choice about the products they buy, introduces something of a discipline. That is not necessarily the case in the public sector. And we're here to talk about public sector unions here with Chris Edwards, Director of Tax Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Andrew Colson, Director of the Center for Educational Freedom at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. So Scott Walker invested a lot of uh, energy into breaking down the collective bargaining. They're referred to as rights. I would say that they are powers that the public sector unions had in that state and other states have uh, followed suit in attempting to do the same thing. Chris Edwards, how did we get to this point? Well, let's wind the clock back to the 1930s and Roosevelt's New Deal. In 1935, Congress passed the Wagner Act, which imposed collective bargaining on the private sector in the United States. But all through the 50s, there was a general agreement that there should not be collective bargaining or monopoly unionism in the public sector in the United States. Roosevelt was against monopoly unions in the public sector. That all started to change in the 1960s, and dozens of states passed collective bargaining laws for their state and local workers. And today, we've got about three-quarters of the states have collective bargaining in the public sector or monopoly or coercive unionism. Collective bargaining means that workers who uh, you know join the police or fire essentially have one monopoly union representing them by force, and they are forced to pay union dues in those states that don't have right-to-work laws. During the 60s and 70s, there was a big movement toward collective bargaining in the public sector. And then we've had a period of quiet for the last few decades. There are still a dozen states like Virginia that don't have unions in the public sector. And a lot of the states like Wisconsin and New Jersey that have these monopoly unions, uh, finally, uh, governors have decided to make some budget reforms. And they've uh, butted heads with these monopoly unions. And so that's where we are today. We, uh, the states need to reform their budgets, need to reform their employee uh, pensions, and the unions stand in the way of reforms in a lot of these states. Now, a lot of the argument that went into the creation of public sector unions was to protect state workers from the pernicious effects of politics. That is, uh, not to repeat the old uh, Tammany Hall days where somebody comes in, they wipe out the uh, executive branch employees, they bring in their guys. That was essentially one of the key arguments, wasn't it? You know, I'm against collective bargaining, both the public and private sector. I believe it's a violation of the, uh, an individual's freedom of association. So, you know, I don't believe that, uh, you know, government should be able to tell people who want to become police officers or firemen or teachers that uh, they must pay union dues and they must be represented by this monopoly union. It seems to me that, you know, teachers or firemen, 
or other workers, their voice is essentially being muted when the government has a single monopoly union that supposedly represents them. They may not agree with the union's views, and but they're forced to uh, be represented by it. We hear in the media a lot about collective bargaining rights. We hear that word over, rights over and over. Well, these aren't individual rights, of course. They're sort of a left-wing group rights. That's what collective bargaining is. And... Um, from a free market or libertarian position, I think, you know, collective bargaining ought to be abolished completely as being incompatible with individual rights. Andrew Colson, about how much of the public sector union, if not problem, just the people, how much of this is just teachers? Certainly the public sector teachers unions are one of the most powerful forces in American politics and probably the most powerful organized labor force in American politics. They have uh, between them on the order of 4.2 million members nationwide. This is the NEA and the AFT, the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers. And they have successfully grown their membership steadily for 40 years. People are generally aware in the public that private sector unionization has been on the decline. It's been declining steadily since the 1950s, 1960s, and today stands at about 6.9% of the private sector labor force. Public sector unionization, particularly public school employee unionization, has been going up during that period and now stands at 70% of the entire public school employee labor force. And when you're talking about the public school employee labor force, has the proportion of those people who actually are teachers, has that gone down? It has gone down somewhat, but it's a mistake to think that the massive growth in employment in public schooling is purely in sort of central office bureaucracies. A lot of it has been teachers, and uh, some of it has also been teachers' aides and sort of assistant teachers who may not be in the classroom at all times, who may be preparing curriculum. But if you actually look at the total growth in employment, it boggles the mind how divorced it is from enrollment. Public school employment has grown 10 times faster than student enrollment. Enrollment's up only about 9% since 1970, employment is up almost 100%. Now, how did that relate to union representation? Is that because the union itself wants to grow its membership? In exactly. It's a central goal of the teachers' union, really the ultimate goal, to increase dues. Dues are power. Dues are used to lobby and to get concessions from the state. And there are just really two ways to increase dues. One is to increase teachers' salaries so that they can pay more in dues individually. And the other, which is actually easier politically, is to increase the size of the workforce so you have more dues-paying members. Teachers' salaries have gone up, but they haven't really gone up that much faster since unionization happened. The employment rate has gone up just astronomically, and uh, it's there that the unions have uh, reaped huge rewards beyond what the market would have provided. To put some figures on that, the National Education Association and the AFT, the other big teachers union, collect annually about $2 billion in union dues, an absolute enormous amount of money. And most of this money comes from teachers in those states that have collective bargaining and so-called agency shop rules where teachers must pay the union dues. They are forced to pay the union dues. So the teachers' unions collect this enormous amount of money, essentially coercively. Uh, then they use it for politicking, and they're extremely active 
in politicking. They're some of the biggest uh, spenders on uh, campaigns and ballot measures in places like California and Oregon, where they they have popular uh, ballot measures. The teachers unions essentially have this, they're government insiders, and they use these forced union dues to help determine public policy questions. I have no problem in states like Virginia, where there is no government unions for voluntary teachers organizations to lobby. They collect voluntary union dues. They lobby. They've got First Amendment right to do that. The problem is in the states that have the coercive union dues for teachers and other government employees. One of the arguments that may well be driven by this uh, desire for teachers unions to increase their dues is the long-held assertion by teachers unions and other groups that the student-teacher ratio is perhaps the most important metric that we can look at in determining the quality of an education. Yeah, that is in fact uh, the central argument that the teachers unions use in order to justify employment growth and that's the reason that they've been successful because the public generally buys that argument. In fact, the research is pretty equivocal on this point. In the early grades, If you reduce class size very substantially, and so increase the teacher to student ratio very substantially, if you have class sizes, say, of 15 or fewer students, there are some studies finding a benefit to student learning. But beyond the earliest grades, there's really very little evidence that class size has much to do with it. And many of the most celebrated teachers in American history, for instance, Jaime Escalante, who was a calculus teacher in California in a public school about whom the movie Stand and Deliver was made, regularly taught classes of 50 students, not uh, wealthy suburban students, but inner city East LA students, underprivileged kids from tough backgrounds in many cases, 50 students teaching them extremely advanced material and was inordinately successful. And he didn't find that his performance declined particularly with the class size. Are there other public policy questions that uh, unions try to make a bigger issue than they otherwise would be? I think that the teachers unions do involve themselves in a lot of political issues. And it's actually there that they start to upset their base in many cases because there's a lot less uniformity on social issues, say, within the teachers unions than there is on the straightforward goals of a normal union, you know, working conditions and salary. And so uh, what you find is that the unions get pushback from their own members when they stray too far from the core mission. And they've actually done a fairly good job of concentrating on their core mission and being successful at it. Public sector unions create some of the same workplace problems that unions in the private sector do. I mean, unions in general, they tend to protect poorly performing workers. They often push for larger staffing levels than required. They discourage the use of volunteers in government activities. And so, for example... I've seen stories from different uh, parts of the country where unions try to elbow out volunteer crossing guards uh, in elementary schools. They resist the introduction of new technologies. They create a more rule-laden workplace. So unions have this effect of creating inefficiency sort of across the board, and they tend to block needed government reforms. Yeah, and just to pick up on that and to put numbers on it, Public school performance at the end of high school, sort of the deliverable of a public education, has been flat since 1970 in reading and math and has actually declined slightly in science. So output of public education has been going down or stagnating. Meanwhile, the cost of putting a single child through K-12 education from kindergarten to graduation has gone up in real inflation-adjusted dollars from about 55,000 to about 150,000. 
over that same period. So we've nearly trebled what we spend and we've gotten nothing more for it. And that is purely as a result of the higher spending and employment growth that teachers unions have been lobbying for. And unions uh, in the public sector, I mean, when you talk about deciding important public policy questions, clearly the goal of uh, teachers unions, other public sector unions is to increase uh, the workforce that is paying those dues. How does What does that do to state budgets? Well, unions are really important in fiscal policy because half of total state and local spending over a trillion dollars a year goes to the wages and salaries of the 15 or so million state and local workers. State and local compensation is simply just a big part of the U.S. economy, a big part of U.S. GDP. So, Virtually all full-time state local workers have defined benefit pension plans, often very generous. They have these generous plans both in the heavily unionized states like New York and California as well as the less unionized states like Virginia. However, I think you really see the impact of unions when states try to reform these overly generous uh, pension plans and other employee benefits in states that are heavily unionized like California, it uh, becomes very difficult to reform these pension plans because you have this built-in, well-funded lobby group that blocks all kinds of reforms. Yeah. In fact, uh, if you look at the budgets, you know, the budget crises around the country, the horrible budget situations we're facing, All of these understate the actual scope of the problem, and that is because states are on the hook. They're committed to paying the retirement benefits for public school employees, but have not been setting aside, in most cases, the money to do that. And they are indeed tens of billions, in some cases, hundreds of billions of dollars behind what is projected when honest projections are made that they will need to pay these bills. And so uh, if something isn't done to rein in the cost of public schooling, it's disastrous for the, uh, the budgets. Now, Scott Walker invested a lot of time, energy, blood and treasure in trying to uh, strip these state workers of their collective bargaining abilities. The point you, Andrew Colson, make is, you know, that may not be the best investment for a governor who wants to essentially break the back of the powers of these uh, monopoly unions. You argue that at least within the education sector, choice in education is far more effective at constraining the power of unions. Right. When I reviewed the research on the effect of collective bargaining per se on school spending, I found that it was either negligible or non-existent, that districts that have collective union bargaining don't spend noticeably more than districts that don't. And the reason is not that collective bargaining is benign. It's that most of the damage, the inflated spending, has already been done at the legislative level. The lobbying by the teachers union has already increased spending to outrageous proportions and the amount of, you know, bickering that goes on in collective bargaining is minor as a result. And so simply phasing out collective bargaining in the public sector will not in all likelihood stop teachers from collectively lobbying to increase their spending at the state legislature level and they'll most likely continue to be successful. So the only thing you can really do if you want to rein in this outrageous public school spending is to give parents and taxpayers an alternative to the status quo monopoly system. Allow parents to choose a private school for their children instead of the assigned public school. And private schools on average cost about two thirds as much per pupil as public schools. So it's a much more affordable option. 
and ideally also let taxpayers redirect their funds to private schooling if they so choose. For instance, Arizona has a scholarship tax credit program where taxpayers can donate to a nonprofit. The nonprofit then gives financial assistance to families who need it to afford private schooling. And so if you're a taxpayer and you find it's outrageous how much the public schools are costing for the quality they're producing, you can redirect your own tax dollars. That program was recently upheld by the Supreme Court just a few weeks ago. Absolutely. There was a, a decision in uh, ACSTO v. Wynn by the Supreme Court, which actually struck down two lower court rulings by the Ninth Circuit. And uh, what the case had been built around was this, you know, very relevant to the taxpayer freedom that I was talking about. A plaintiff had alleged that if taxpayers could get a credit for giving to a religious scholarship organization, well, that was like compelling other taxpayers to support it. And the justices just said, that's not right. If a taxpayer decides to give to a religious organization, that's his choice. There are both secular and religious scholarship organizations in Arizona, and it's the taxpayer's individual choice. And taxpayers indeed don't need to participate in this program at all. They can simply pay their taxes as they normally do. And so not only does this kind of program expand access among lower income families to to private school choice and therefore, you know, improve education, but it also gives freedom to taxpayers that they don't have today. You can be compelled to pay for public, you are compelled to pay for public schools today. And under this uh, tax credit program, you have some choice. One of the other issues uh, related to this is the idea that, um, well, teachers unions are very organized. They are the single group that is most interested in having people friendly to them on local school boards. And when it comes time to collectively bargain, again, understates the problem to say that that collective bargaining is one-sided. In many cases, it's not. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There have been a lot of studies done about the the actual behavior of school boards and parent-teacher associations even, and they tend to have been captured. Um, It's a sort of general case of producer capture. The most powerful group and the group with the most concentrated interests in all of these organizations are the teachers. And so they come to dominate any organization either by being more organized and getting the right people from their view, elected to school boards, or by finding the right parents to work with who are very much in sharing in common their goals. Chris Edwards, some final thoughts on uh, the collective bargaining and public sector unions? Look, I think to put citizens and taxpayers back in control of their governments, we need to ban collective bargaining and forced union dues in the public sector. Public employees like teachers should certainly be free to join worker associations, volunteer associations with volunteer dues, but they shouldn't be given a special legal status and handed extra power to block desperately needed educational and fiscal reforms in the states. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Chris Edwards, Director of Tax Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Andrew Colson, Director of the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. You can read more on public sector unions. There's a recent uh, Cato Journal that was uh, full of articles uh, dealing specifically with uh, public sector unions and get more at our website, cato.org. The trade deficit is something of a hobgoblin. When it gets bigger, people complain. When it gets smaller, we're supposed to cheer. George Mason University economist Don Boudreau argues that fretting about the trade deficit is nothing more than complaining that your grocer only sells you food and buys nothing in return. He spoke at a Cato Institute Hill briefing in March. Cafe Hayek is named after 
F.A. Hayek, the late Nobel Prize winning economist, and Hayek wrote a famous essay entitled The Confusion of Language in Political Thought. And I don't think there's any area of policy that involves economics that has more confusing language than does the trade area. To talk about exports is, is right up there as confusing language. People think exports are good. I mean, to promote a policy that emphasizes exports is like promoting a policy saying, you know, vote for me, I'll implement policies that ensure that you work harder and harder and produce more and more and get less and less in return. If it was put that way, people would say, hmm, that doesn't sound so good. But that really is what all this export promotion amounts to, because people don't understand the economics, and they don't understand really what the term export means, they don't understand what the word import really means as they connect to each other. No term is more misunderstood in this debate than the trade deficit. Um, I'm going to actually change a little bit what I intended to say and focus a little bit on the trade deficit. Trade deficit sounds bad. Every time a news reporter talks about the trade deficit rising, there's a collective groan, oh no, it's bad, or if it falls, we say, whoo, that's really good news. It sounds like we're losing something. It sounds like uh, you know, something must be repaid. Uh, I believe that this popular view of the trade deficit, and it's one that I'm sorry to say is shared by more than a few economists who don't think seriously about trade. Actually, a lot of economists don't think seriously about economics in general, but that's another issue. I think this view is completely backwards. Trade deficit never, ever, ever is a cause of economic harm. It always improves the economy. It may or may not be a symptom of something going awry, but no one should ever lament the trade deficit per se. A U.S. trade deficit or U.S. current account deficit, to be more precise, in today's world of nation-based currencies means that foreigners are investing in America. They're investing in dollar-denominated assets. I think investment's good. Investment expands the U.S. capital base. It increases our output. It makes workers more productive. And more productive workers, over time, earn more compensation. The standard of living rises. Investment's good regardless of the nationalities of the person doing the investment. If I like the output from the factory across town, or if I find an attractive job, in that factory, I don't care if that factory is owned by someone from Jacksonville or someone from Jakarta. The economic consequences in both cases are the same. To lament an American trade deficit is to lament the fact that foreigners are investing in America. And that seems rather odd to me. And it's important to keep in mind that capital, productive assets, including worker skills, is not fixed in size. It's not a fixed pie of capital in the world. It just gets redistributed according to different trade patterns and investment patterns. Capital can and does expand. It can also shrink, depending upon the extant policies. Much of the fear over the trade deficit arises from the misconception that more foreign investment in America, while it might increase the size of the capital stock in America, reduces American share of ownership in that capital stock. It could be true. But not necessarily. When BMW builds a plant in Greer, South Carolina, that doesn't shrink America's capital stock. That increases America's capital stock. Nor does it necessarily mean that Americans have less capital themselves to own. If the persons who sold the land, let's say, to BMW took the proceeds from those land sales and started their own businesses, I don't know, Microsoft, or I'm sure that was, wasn't one of them in, 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 that, in that example. But started their own firms, invested in existing American corporations, no matter where they are. They became wealthier, too. Their ownership of capital 
increased as well. And so when foreigners invest in America, that makes us wealthier, that makes them wealthier. So whenever I hear reports of increases in America's trade deficit, I hear, oh great, foreigners are investing more in the United States, and I rejoice because of that. More investment here. Our capital stock is likely increasing in size, and people the world over generally still regard the United States as at least a relatively good place to invest. They have confidence in the U.S. economy. The new health care law's constitutional pedigree is at best highly suspect. Attorney David Rivkin argues that the law is unprecedented in its reach. He claims the individual mandate is the single most unconstitutional piece of statute language in our history, because allowing the government to regulate economic inactivity would allow for federal intervention in virtually every kind of market imaginable. He spoke at the Cato Institute in March. Now, tackling the substance first, the individual mandate, which is situated at the very heart of Obamacare, violates, in my view, and fortunately and more importantly, in the view of our district court, the most fundamental constitutional principles. It violates centuries of settled case law. It is fundamentally different from every law regulating commerce that Congress has ever enacted from the first day of our republic up to now. Indeed, on the flip side of it, ladies and gentlemen, if a mandate were to be constitutional, much of the framers' drafting of the original Constitution and of the Bill of Rights and all of our Congress's, subsequent Congress's legislative work in the centuries hence, at best, is largely incoherent and at worst superfluous. Thus, I was not engaging hyperbole when I stated uh, during the December 16 oral argument before Judge Roger Minson and our cross motions for summary judgment but the individual mandate in the act, charmingly referred to as PPACA, for those of you who are like acronyms, which it is the key part, um, the single most unconstitutional piece of statutory language in our history. I also said at the time that it's one of the most badly drafted statutes I've ever seen, but that's a, a different story, but I'll be happy to elaborate on that during Q's and A's. Now, of course, that's not how the administration feels. The Obama administration's bottom line is that Congress can indeed regulate commerce by first forcing people to engage in it and then regulating their engagement. Under their thinking, doing nothing is an economic activity that Congress can reach through the Commerce Clause proper and then packaged into a more comprehensive statute like Obamacare, also under Vanessa and proper clause. This argument and uh, some related points that are made in the process has at least five major constitutional consequences, all of which violate both the fundamental constitutional principles and centuries of settled case law. To begin with, this argument eviscerates the very core architectural principle of dual sovereignty, that is, the heart of our constitutional architecture, which is, requires necessarily, if it's to have any meaning, that the federal government exercises only limited and enumerated powers while the states, in James Madison's famous words, possess, quote, residual sovereignty, unquote, often referred to as police power. Of course, regulating an activity, regulating people because they exist, not because of activities they engage to, but compelling them to act is the very essence of general police power. Another attribute of general police power is that unlike a regulation of individuals based upon their activities, their actions cannot be avoided. 
nothing captures this distinction, this, this point, better than the fact that all one has to do, put yourself in a position of a person who is trying to decide whether to comply, given federal statute regulating a particular activity, let's say commodity, be it wheat or cannabis, could have said weed, but cannabis sounds a little more scholarly, is not to engage in that activity or do nothing with regard to a commodity and issue, and presto pronto, you just opted out of a federal regulatory vortex. The statute has nothing to do with you. You can go on with your life. By contrast, in the state of Massachusetts, requires old adults to be inoculated for smallpox. There's no opting out of that particular regulatory regime. If you're an adult, if you happen to be found within the borders of Massachusetts, you are stuck. It applies to you. Same, of course, is true with regard to such things as um, obligation to purchase hurricane insurance and various other things that states exercising general police power can do to you, whatever the policy merits of those schemes. Now, to justify claiming for itself this police power, federal government, in effect, argues that inactivity, specifically in our case, a failure by an individual to acquire a particular good or service, again, in our case, qualified particular type of medical insurance, is within the scope of a Commerce Clause because this inactivity can be linked, can be tightly linked to a discernible economic effect. Indeed, the most articulate version of this argument uh, was made in Judge Judith Kessler's from District Court bench in the District of Columbia, recent decision, which upheld the individual mandate, which essentially proceeded as follows. A failure to purchase insurance is a decision, which is no different than the decision to purchase insurance, and since both the purchasing and non-purchasing decisions, ladies and gentlemen, in the aggregate have a substantial economic footprint, they can be reached under the Commerce Clause, full stop. Now, so elegantly worded decision, quite frankly better than some other decisions that make the same point, but the argument is still fundamentally flawed. Now, leaving aside the fact that Judge Kessler and the administration are making some rather remarkable assumptions about human nature, I don't know about you, but it's a bit of a surprise to me since not every aspect of our existence is driven by well-structured decisions. But leaving that little point aside, there's a fundamental problem here because in a modern economy, every inactivity, every failure to purchase a good or service, or every failure to engage in a particular activity, let's say sleeping to the exclusion of working, has in the aggregate some, let's stipulate, pretty formidable economic consequences. Hence, there cannot be any judicially enforceable limiting principle found here, and all activities can be swept in under the Commerce Clause. Now, under this logic, the federal government is capable of exercising general police power, and the dual sovereignty system is pretty much dead, which may not trouble some folks, but at least when you try to sell it to the courts, um, the government is understandably nervous about the implications of this argument, that Congress can essentially regulate anything, so it's come up pretty early in litigation with a follow-up argument that it claims has a built-in limiting principle. What government is really making is a kind of plea to the court, please, please uphold the statute. You have no consequences for the future. Nothing like this would ever happen again. Now, why is that? Well, and I quote the argument that government has made innumerable times in their pleadings, in our case, in other cases, in oral argument, and the claim is, quote, the healthcare market is unique, close quote. But it ain't unique, not by a long short. It's not up to the government to subsidize political speech. 
In short, those subsidies violate core First Amendment principles by meddling in the marketplace of ideas. And that's the issue of the case brought before the U.S. Supreme Court on Arizona's so-called clean election system. Nick Dranius, an attorney at the Goldwater Institute, presented that issue at the Cato Institute in March. See, the deeper problem with clean elections really is not even the fact that it chills speech, not that even that it makes speech less effective, but it invites a level of government manipulation into the electoral system and opens up opportunities for deceptive gaming of the system that vastly exceeds the corrupting possibilities of private campaign financing. That is truly a dangerous system. Now, let me first hit these concepts point by point, starting with the last. One of the funny things about clean elections is the way money is triggered. And I'm going to play a little game with you. And maybe you're too shy to raise your hands again. But imagine you were a political action committee, an independent group. And your job was to oppose a privately financed candidate in an election in Arizona. Okay? You hate this privately financed candidate. Now, he's facing five publicly financed candidates, all of whom stand to get matched dollar for dollar for any money you might spend to support that privately funded candidate you hate. So think about this. If you were to spend a dollar opposing the privately funded candidate, it would have no other effect other than that one dollar. But if you were to spend a dollar opposing that privately funded candidate, it would trigger five dollars. One dollar to each of his opposing participating candidates to be used against him. Now, being a clever political consultant, what would you tell your independent group to do? to get the most money, the most bang out of their buck. Would you tell them to spend a dollar honestly opposing that traditional candidate? Or would you tell them to spend a dollar with a lukewarm, ineffective message of support that triggers $5 in opposition to this candidate? Well, if you're a rational political consultant, I think you know what the choice would be. And this is where the potential for corruption has been magnified. The potential for undermining the integrity of the election system has been magnified because of Arizona's public financing system. Using this kind of gaming of the system, where through a dishonest tactic of appearing to support someone, you trigger opposition spending through the triggering of matching funds to their opposing candidates, we have seen hundreds of signs called reverse targeting that have happened. Now, the opposition will claim you can't really prove that these, these ineffective, harmful ads were really meant to trigger matching funds to the opposing party. But there is no doubt the system incentivizes it. And it doesn't end there. Imagine you were a self-financed wealthy candidate, and you wanted to run for an election. But you really liked the two participating candidates that were running supposedly against you. And you're really feeling bad about the fact that under Arizona's very low contribution limits, you can't give them more than 800 bucks. But you've got millions that you want to spend to support these two other candidates that you really, really like, but they're publicly financed candidates, and you can't support them directly. So what do you do? Well, you might do what Sam George did 
which is run as a privately financed candidate for one of three seats in Arizona's Corporation Commission. Spend a million dollars or so, actually he spent about a half a million dollars, in support of his candidacy and trigger a million dollars to his two preferred teamed participating candidates through matching funds. That gentleman managed to make a contribution leveraging public financing that would be simply impossible under Arizona's existing system of campaign finance laws. And in fact, this happened. In the 2008 Arizona election cycle, three gentlemen ran as a solar team. One of them was an independently self-financed millionaire candidate named Sam George, who claimed on his website to have helped draft the Clean Elections Act. And he proceeded to spend gobs of money on his candidacy, triggering hundreds of thousands of dollars to publicly financed candidates to be used jointly as part of a coordinated campaign. Now, he didn't win. But ask yourself, do you think he really cared? So this is one of the dirty secrets, actually not so secret in Arizona, about the so-called Clean Elections Act. Even if you believe in public financing of elections, this is not the way to go. Because what this system does is it augments and leverages public financing to do everything that the campaign reform people think is bad about private finance candidates. And it does it on a scale that is far, far greater. I bet you my time's getting short, so let me leave you with the following thought. What could be more dangerous for our system of electoral politics than to have the entity that is supposed to be checked by that process controlling it. There wouldn't be much worse than that. It would be an utter sham. And what the clean election system enables is just about that. Because what goes on in the clean election system is the government is funding the candidates that it later regulates and our evidence shows lobbies to preserve their existence against repeal statutes that would take away the power of the Clean Elections Commission. This actually happened. So you have the government, if you believe that any sort of finance has control or influence on anyone, you have the government providing all of the financing to candidates, having the ability to regulate them and put them in jail or take away all of their funding if necessary, and then later hiring a lobbyist in a contract of nearly $100,000 to go lobby them when a bill is floated to repeal the Clean Elections Act to prevent that bill from passing. Now, that controls the process on the front end at the point of elections. It controls the process on the back end at the point of lobbying. And in the end, you have a system that thoroughly is set up for the government to be the dominant player in the very political process that is meant to check the government. That would be a disaster if the court let it stand. Obamacare's impact on the price of health care, the size of federal deficits, and the level of taxes is hard to grapple with. 
Former Congressional Budget Office Director Douglas Holtz Eakin says the administration falsely claims that the new health care law will shrink deficits. He calls it a budgetary disaster of the first order. Holtz Eakin spoke at the Cato Institute in March. One of the things that has been forgotten in the course of the debate and the enactment, now the anniversary, is that there was a time several years ago, beginning of 2009, when it was a bipartisan conclusion that America needed sensible health care reforms that would control the growth of spending, improve the efficiency of the delivery system, and expand coverage. That was, in fact, a bipartisan objective. What happened in between ended up as a highly partisan activity and has given me just one more piece of evidence that all partisan laws end up being bad policy. It is unwise in a democracy to push through large legislation on one party's votes. Those laws are never infused by the best ideas of both sides. As a result, they're not as good. And they immediately become the kinds of objects for overturning that we've seen the Affordable Care Act become among Republicans. It doesn't serve a country that needs a durable and functional health care system well to undertake this kind of an activity. And so I expect us to be back again in the future discussing either the demise of the Affordable Care Act, which I view as a real possibility, or alternatives that would be built upon its shaky foundation. What are the problems with that foundation? Well, Michael asked me to talk a little bit about the Affordable Care Act from the perspective of budget, labor market, and economic policy. And there I think it is indeed a dramatically dangerous piece of legislation and at the wrong point in our history. I hope it is now well understood that the federal government's budget is on the road to hell, that there is no polite way to describe why the world's largest economy has placed itself on a trajectory that looks like a third world debt crisis where we will knowingly drive ourselves to the point where we run at full employment, trillion-dollar deficits, three-fourths to 80% of which are interest on previous borrowing within the next 10 years. And it is for that reason mystifying to me when the very prosperity and freedom that is the, built on that economy is put at risk by taking a decisive step in the wrong direction at a time when we already have such deep problems. There is no way you can pretend that the Affordable Care Act will improve the government's fiscal or budgetary condition. It sets up two new entitlement spending programs, insurance subsidies for those in the exchanges, and the so-called CLASS Act, a long-term care insurance program, both of which the Congressional Budget Office estimates will grow at an average of 8% per year annually, as far as the eye can see. Tax revenues will not grow at 8% a year annually as far as the eye can see. The economy will not grow at a rate of 8% annually as far as the eye can see. There will be no way either of those things can keep up with these new spending demands and that the budget will deteriorate, not improve. Now, you can paper that over with a variety of budgetary gimmicks and tricks over the 10-year budget window, and that has been done in the passage of this legislation. You can count on savings that will never appear in the Medicare program because we haven't reformed the Medicare program its business model remains the same, its costs will be the same, its providers will need the same money, or we just won't cover the beneficiaries. And I think when Congress is faced with that choice, it will cover the beneficiaries. You just simply 
cannot pretend that the Class Act will collect money inside the budget window and not pay out benefits past the budget window. You cannot leave out the annual appropriations that are necessary to set up and run the program. You cannot do all the things that they did and somehow trick people into believing this is a good step from a budgetary point of view. And that's if you take it at face value. And I think there are two enormous risks to the so-called face value that have been underappreciated in the discussion of the cost of the Affordable Care Act. Number one is the notion that we will give to one family that makes about $59,000, $7,000 in subsidies in the exchanges because their employer doesn't offer them insurance. And the, we can find another identical family that makes the same money and gets nothing because their employer offers insurance. It is an unfairness of such manifest proportions that it won't survive in this country. And my fear is that Congress, when faced with this gross inequity, is going to say, oh my god, we have to fix this. How could this have happened? The answer is you did it, but we've seen that movie. And they'll fix it by giving everybody the money. And it'll explode in cost. And the second big risk is that we'll end up with more people in the exchanges because employers can do arithmetic. Congress may or may not, but employers can do arithmetic. And they understand that there is so much taxpayer money on the table in those exchanges that it is entirely possible for them to drop their coverage, particularly for anyone under 300% of the federal poverty line, it is a no-brainer to drop the coverage, pay the penalty, give the worker a raise, and allow that worker to take the post-tax wage plus the subsidies and buy insurance that is just as good as what they're offering or better out in the exchanges, and still come out ahead as an employer. We have put so much money on the table that it is a no-brainer for workers and employers to agree that the coverage should go away and everyone should go into the exchanges. If you take the population that's eligible for that kind of bargain and assume that not even all of them do it, you can double the trillion dollar cost easily over the first 10 years or triple it. It is not a law we can afford and the reason is that we have somehow tricked ourselves into pretending that you can say that any insurance that costs more than 10% of your income is unaffordable when as a nation we're spending almost 20 cents of every dollar in health care. Those two things can't both be true. So this is a budgetary disaster of the first order. And we may want to expand coverage, I understand that, but if we want to do that we have to first genuinely fix the delivery system, control the costs and channels of those resources in. A cover first strategy was a mistake from the outset because it covers people on paper, yes, but the moment we put those 32 million people into the system and the providers get overwhelmed, there is no way a Congress can go back to them and say, fix the way you do your business. They're going to say, not a chance. We are so busy taking care of the folks you gave us. And we won't see those improvements. And this system will, uh, I believe, collapse under its own budgetary weight. Contemporary challenges to classical liberalism are manifold. Economist Mark Pennington takes on those threats in his new book, Robust Political Economy. Pennington argues that a world of imperfect knowledge and imperfect incentives demands markets and a minimal state. He made this case at the Cato Institute in March. It's very nice to be giving this talk in the Hayek Auditorium here at the Cato Institute, because in many ways, this book, Robust Political Economy, is inspired 
by many of Friedrich Hayek's ideas. At the beginning of the Constitution of Liberty, Hayek sets himself the task of piecing together the fragments of what he describes as a broken tradition. Uh, that tradition at the time was classical liberalism, and Hayek saw himself as trying to recreate that tradition. Now, I should say at the outset that I don't consider myself to be in the league of uh, Friedrich Hayek, but nonetheless, my book is inspired by the same sort of a vision, an attempt to, in my own way, piece together the fragments of a broken tradition. Now, you may say, why would you want to do this? What is there to, to fix? Haven't classical liberals in the fields of economic and political theory over recent years offered convincing defenses of their ideas against various challenges which have come their way? Now, I think this is true. If you look at some of the economic arguments advanced in favor of markets, economists have come up with good defenses against various market failure theories. If you look at political theorists, they've come up with good responses to the kind of arguments that are made by egalitarians and by communitarians. However, what I think has been lacking in the recent past has been some kind of unified theoretical framework which can bring together all of these criticisms and the classical liberal responses to these criticisms. We don't have a unified framework which can actually respond not only to the economic objections which have been raised against classical liberalism, but also to the political and ethical challenges which have been raised against the tradition as well. Now, there are three challenges which I set out in the book that I think classical liberalism needs to respond to. They are the challenges from market failure economics, what I describe as the challenge of neoclassical economics, the challenge of communitarianism, and finally, the challenge of egalitarianism. So those are the three challenges that I think face classical liberalism, and the unified framework which I think we can use to respond simultaneously to all of these challenges is the framework of robust political economy that I set out in this book. So what is robust political economy? Well, something is robust if it's actually able to withstand various stresses and strains. In the context of political and economic institutions, we can define something as being robust, or political institution or an economic institution as being robust, if it's able to withstand the stresses and strains that are wrought by various human imperfections. Now, there are two human imperfections that I focus on in the book. The first is the idea of limited human rationality. The idea that human beings are not fully rational agents. They are not omniscient beings. Whenever they make decisions, they do so in a context of considerable uncertainty. There is always imperfect information when they're making decisions. We need, therefore, to evaluate institutions in terms of how well they cope, how robust they are in the face of this inevitable human weakness. More specifically, if decision-making takes place in a context of imperfect information, what kind of institutions facilitate learning over time and what kind of institutions minimize the consequences of what will be inevitable human mistakes or human errors? The second human imperfection that we have to take account of is the problem of what I describe as limited benevolence. 
the notion that people may, under certain circumstances, act out of self-interested motivations, that they may be opportunistic in certain circumstances. On this kind of a view, we need to evaluate institutions in terms of the incentives they provide to channel potentially opportunistic actors to behave in a way which actually increases the overall level of well-being in society that improves the public good, if you like. So those are the two human imperfections that robust institutions actually have to deal with. Now, in the first part of the book, I claim that challenges to classical liberalism, the various challenges to the classical liberal tradition, fail to meet the criteria of robustness. Their particular alternatives to the classical liberal ideal of a minimal state and open markets do not address how their own favored institutions will deal with the problem of limited rationality and the problem of limited benevolence. The classical liberal case for a minimal state framework with an open market economy based on the dispersed ownership of property is based on the claim that these institutions are more robust in the face of limited rationality and limited benevolence. A competitive context is the best context to deal with the, play, with the fact that people are imperfectly informed. When we have lots of different decision makers making different sorts of decisions, we can facilitate a process of trial and error learning which minimizes the consequence of any particular errors. If you centralize decision making in one place and people make mistakes, then the consequences are much more far-reaching than if that decision-making power is more dispersed. Likewise, a classical liberal framework which provides for exit enables people to escape from the depredations of potentially predatory actors. If people are acting opportunistically, the capacity to exit from relationships with these actors is what provides a disciplinary check on potentially self-interested behavior. Now, what I claim is, throughout the book, that the challenges to classical liberalism, whether it's market failure economics or communitarian and egalitarian variants of political theory, lack an account of how their favored institutions can deal with these problems of limited rationality and limited benevolence. And I want to work through now in the rest of my presentation a few examples to illustrate this particular point, which lies at the heart of this book. Okay, let's start off with market failure economics. Market failure economics, or for want of a better phrase, mainstream neoclassical economics, evaluates market institutions against the benchmark of full information equilibrium. Any departures from this full information equilibrium are described as market failures, which is considered are ripe for some kind of corrective government action. Now, if we take the perspective of robust political economy and focus first of all on the idea of limited rationality, then this notion of perfection or full information in this particular context simply isn't a valid standard against which to evaluate either market institutions or any other institutions for that matter. The case for markets isn't that they are perfect institutions. The case for markets is based on the view that they are best placed to cope with the inevitability of imperfect information and limited rationality. So, for example, take the notion that neoclassical economists focus on of imperfect competition, which is often considered to be ripe 
for some kind of corrective government action. If we're in a world of limited rationality, of imperfect knowledge, then knowledge of what should be produced and how it should be produced isn't going to be evenly distributed. It's going to be unevenly distributed. Some firms are going to judge the market better than others. Some firms are going to make more profits than others. Other firms are going to make losses. It's precisely through these imperfections or inequalities that a learning process is set in motion so that people can learn over time to copy the more successful firms and to avoid the business models that are adopted by the less successful firms. Any market which is based on imperfect information, unevenly distributed knowledge, is going to look imperfect when judged against a standard of perfection. The question is, what is the alternative to this imperfection? Is it a world where regulators somehow magically are supposed to know what the ideal market structure is? If we're in a world of limited rationality, there's no reason to suppose that government regulators that are in a monopolistic position are in a position to know what the ideal market structure is. Now, you may say that this kind of analysis is somewhat old hat, that there are new market failure theorists, such as, for example, the Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz, who are well aware that government is likely to fail in the way that markets fail. When push comes to shove, however, if you actually look at what writers such as Stiglitz do, they always hold markets against a different standard to public policy interventions or to government regulators. Stiglitz is fond of saying that the price system, because of its various imperfections, is too coarse a decision-making instrument to enable people to make effective decisions. What he lacks is an account of why government regulators should be assumed to be in a position to correct for these market imperfections. Now, if I may, I'd like to quote from um, a little piece of scripture to illustrate this particular point. This is what Stiglitz says. Now, bear in mind, he believes that he's arguing that government can improve on the results of an imperfect market. This is what he says. A full corrective policy would entail taxes and subsidies on virtually all commodities based on estimated demand and supply elasticities for all commodities and all cross-elasticities. This is the key phrase. The practical information required to implement the corrective taxation is well beyond that available at the present time. <laughs> Supposedly, though, given all of this, we're supposed to trust still that government regulators are going to be improving on the market outcome. Stiglitz doesn't give any justification for this assumption whatsoever. He fails, in my view, to meet the standards of a robust political economy. Now, there are other examples where Stiglitz commits the same sort of error in terms of incentives. Stiglitz is fond of pointing out various instances where there is asymmetric information in markets, where there are problems of high transaction costs or principal agent problems which lead to various market failures. What he doesn't do, though, is explain again how a public policy alternative can somehow be immune from the very same deficiencies. It's very interesting if you look at the way he completely misrepresents the work of Ronald Coase. 
in this context. Anybody who knows anything about Coase will know that his whole work is focused on the problem of transaction costs. This is Stiglitz, and again, I'm going to quote from some scripture, speaking about Ronald Coase. Coase went wrong in assuming that there are no transaction costs and information costs. But the central contention of this book, and the book he's referring to here is his book, With a Socialism, is that information costs are pervasive. Assuming away information costs in an analysis of economic behavior and organization is like leaving Hamlet out of the play. Now that's Stiglitz describing what he, he thinks is Ronald Coase's view. This is actually what Ronald Coase says about the matter. The reason why economists went wrong was that their theoretical system did not take into account a factor that is essential if one wishes to analyze the effect of a change in the law on the allocation of resources. This missing factor is the existence of transaction costs. The whole of Coase's analysis or case for the market economy is based on the recognition that yes, there are principal agent problems within markets, which lead to so-called market failures, but that we always have to compare these to the alternative. Anybody knows anything about public choice theory and the way it analyzes the way that governmental structures actually operate would know that controlling a government is the mother of all principal agent problems. There's no incentives in most contexts for voters to try to inform themselves about what politicians are doing because the chance that any one individual voter can affect the result of an election is infinitesimally small. The case for private enterprise is precisely that principal agent problems are more pervasive in the public sector than in the private sector alternative. Conclusion? Stiglitz's approach does not meet the standards required by a robust political economy. Okay, that's the market failure economics out of the way. I want to apply the same type of analysis now to look at the challenges which are derived from communitarian political theory and egalitarian political theory. Let's take communitarianism first. Now, there are many different claims that communitarians make. There's only one that I want to focus on for the purposes of this very brief talk. Communitarians challenge classical liberalism on the grounds that we shouldn't evaluate institutions on their capacity to respond to or to satisfy given individual preferences. On a communitarian view, we should evaluate institutions in terms of whether or not they have the capacity to challenge the preferences that individuals have. What they're getting at here is the notion that liberalism lacks any account of how we can elevate people's preferences, how we can encourage people or educate them to have a more informed or enlightened set of preferences to the ones that they currently happen to have. Now, this is a particular concern if you believe that the existing set of individual preferences are based on various prejudices which can exclude various sections of the population, whether it's prejudices to do with race, gender, sexual orientation, or any of those other sorts of issues. On a communitarian view, Democracy is better placed than the market to challenge irrational or prejudiced preferences that people may have, precisely because it's based on majority rule. On a communitarian view, people's preferences should have to be justified to the majority before they can be put into practice. And this majoritarian check 
will provide the context within which bad preferences can be weeded out and that we can have an overall elevation in the quality of the preferences that individual actors happen to have. Now, this kind of view, if we think about it in terms of robust political economy, I argue in the book, is based on a hopelessly romanticized view of how any democratic or majoritarian process can actually operate. It's based on a complete failure to understand how most people learn in most situations in life. The most important form of learning in society, especially if you take Hayek's ideas seriously, isn't the kind of learning that takes place when we argue with one another in a public forum and come to a majority decision about which particular view is best. The most important form of learning takes place from seeing what other people do in their lives and learning from the experiences of other people. Now, in order for that learning to take place, it's absolutely imperative that the widest possible number of experiences or experiments in living, if you like, can actually take place. Majoritarianism, by its very nature, squelches the process of experimentation. The way we get value change in most fields of life is by entrepreneurs, whether in the economic domain or in the moral domain, breaking from the majority position and doing something different. Then gradually through a process of incremental change, the majority view changes. Hayek puts this very well when he states that it is only by allowing the minority to act in ways different from what the majority would prescribe that the majority in the end learns to do better. A system of private property rights which allows people to carry out experiments in living is much more likely to challenge existing prejudices and preferences than is any socialist or collectivist alternative. Global warming alarmism has invaded nearly every aspect of public policy. But a new book from the Cato Institute, Climate Coup, Global Warming's Invasion of Our Government and Our Lives, provides the antidote to this panic. It confronts exaggerations and myths about global warming and provides necessary tools to push back against the takeover. For more information or to purchase your copy, visit Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.